Hey, it's me, Fable D. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is episode six, I believe. It's going to be a little bit of a special episode, so if you're not interested, I understand. It was going to be a special episode regardless. Originally, we were going to have uh, me, my friend Xavier, and Jonah. We were going to jump on with multiple microphones. It was probably going to be the best audio quality of all the episodes, which in future, we're still going to have good quality coming up because I worked on getting software downloaded and and hardware figured out for the microphone to work. So we'll be able to have good audio quality probably on episode 7. And um, I'm excited to say that this episode is going to be about my D&D campaign. I recommend just listening in. Maybe there's going to be something about my storytelling and my world building that you might like. I've created an entire world, not fully on my own, with a lot of help from my friends. And I've stolen bits and pieces from other media sources. And I'm just going to kind of go into it. That's what today is going to be about. For more context, this map is going to show up on the Instagram. And it's going to be kind of important to look at the map every now and again when I bring up certain spots. Otherwise, just let your imagination run. So if you look to the west, you see the Tricorn of Giants. This was the center of the land of Carapagia for a time. The death of Overlord Korath split the triplet sons, Karim, Corin, and Seraph. The eldest of the three decided he would die before letting either of his brothers take the throne. Karim drove out his other two brothers, and at 16, they each created their own kingdoms. As you can see on the map, at the west, there's Karim. the south, there's Corin, and on the east, there's Seraph. As the boys have all grown old and bitter at one another, Corin began to run crusades along the lands to conquer his brother's fallen kingdoms. He's so far been unsuccessful, he hasn't conquered any other land. And for more context, Corin is the middle son of the three. He uh, is the only one born with elven blood. If you look south from Karim and the Tricorn of Giants and Shafon, you'll see the Kingdom of Scab. Outlanders of Carapacia, the invading armies of Scab, have conquered all of the continent from which they hail. The human chauvinistic military seeks to overtake all of Carapacia and all lands past it. Having seized parts of Chiffon, Imperator Canfries orders the destruction of the idea of Carapacia and the false kings of Korath. False kings being the sons of Korath. They're essentially human nationalists, human extremists, and they hate all other races. Their goal is to take over Carapacia. And for those of you who aren't part of the campaign and don't know anything about it, Carapacia is about the size of Earth. Everything kind of scales. Like, if you look at One Piece, you know it's like, oh, it's 30 million times the size of Earth, but people still work the same. And that's essentially what Carapacia is. It's, it's one continent among the many. I haven't given a number for it yet, but I, I gave it the ability to last forever. I made this campaign, I made it able to last for years and years and years and years. Ultimately, you're probably not going to see that. It's probably going to last for maybe two more and then it'll die out. But, you know, you can always hope for the best. Continually, we have Citroma, Argentus, and Oris, the lands of the dwarves. Oris and Argentus, the sister cities of gold and silver have long since been won. Split due to alliances under Karim and Seraph, respectively, the two cities have mended their relationship due to the lack of direct spillings of blood between them. They've never been in open battle with one another in the 40-50 years since Karim had split the kingdom. This relation was restored after Ooh, I can't count. It says it right here that I wrote down. The relation was stored 29 years after the beginning of the Triplets' War. So, at this time, they were, if math, 16 plus 20 is 36, plus 9 is 45. So, all the kings are 45. 
Oh, that's wrong. It's fine. I'll figure it out. It, there's Sometime later, I wrote down 29. That's the number that I have. They um, have restored their relationship. The Citroman separatist dwarves retained their allegiance to the old kingdom of Cupris, the land now split by the sisters Amalia Silver and Amadea Gold, which is Argentus and Horus. At one time, it was once called Cupris. Um, it was all one city of dwarves underground and in the mountains and all that jazz. It was all one place for a time. Citroma no longer participates in war. However, they still have a fully trained military, but they spend most of their times in parties and living lavish at feasts and balls and things like that. The cities of Pons, Cascan and Betran, are allied to Kerum, and then Basta, Chiffon, and the Linguin Wilds are uh, allied to Seraph. Kerum, uh, as promised, Cascan sovereignty and Betran wealth. Seraph offers religious protection to Basta and Chiffon. Both cities believe Seraph was betrayed by his elder brother and deserves his seat upon the throne. The Linguin wild folk support Seraph as they believe he has the best chance of becoming the High King of Carapaccia. And then we have the Peskinback Islands, which are to the south of Corin and also southeast of the Kingdom of Scab. Um, tradesmen of the land, these islanders run majority of the money of Carapaccia. They are the bankers. Fishermen, pirates, hunters, farmers, enchanters, and bankers. These men create magical armor to give them the ability to access their deep sea bank vaults. Continuing, we have the archipelago of Awan. The elves of Carapaccia, of all orders and classifications, are cast away to the Nine Islands. Attempting to regain their honor and pride, the elves continue to diminish in strength. The elves have all but lost their magic. Wizards and other various mages have isolated themselves on the final of the Nine Islands to avoid the poisonous faith of Erisor, a religion held by the Kingdom of Scab and Many of their of those humans follow Erisor, a god I created for the sake of the campaign. There are also gods that are established from other mythologies and from D&D within this world, but I just created a couple to add a little bit of flavor, even though I could just steal all of D&D gods and be fine. Anyway, if you look to the northeast, we have the Frostborn Wildlands and Scoria. Giants birthed in the lands of ice and fire. The tribes of the Frostborn Wildlands roam unorganized. It have a strength unmatched by any of the armies of Carapaccia. Both the frost and the flame welcome visitors from the outside, unafraid of invasion or betrayal. It's also kind of naivete. They don't really expect anyone to go against them because they think of themselves as the strongest. And generally, they are. They would kick most people's asses. And continuing, we have Caranth. The city of shadow, and by city I mean country, this is one whole country and it's the land of the thieves. A land once known for their illustrious former king, Zacchaeus Bronstar, of a land once known. The secrets of Corinth lie unknown for the time being while there are people still working through that land in my campaign. I'm not going to talk about it just because I don't want them getting spoiled from hearing me talk about this. We have the Zolan Highlands which are to the west of the Frostborn Wildlands. They're run by Empress Zola, Queen of the Marazors, which is really just my equivalent to Amazons. Don't worry about it. Queen of the Marazors commands from the high forest of Artemis Retreat. Her kingdom is not recognized by any other royal entity aside from Corin, but is also not tread upon by even the likes of the scabs. 
everyone essentially is afraid of them. Empress Zola is a powerful druid known for slaying the vampiric bandits from Obla. She was granted the giantess bat Artemia as her pet and companion. Many of the Marazors lack druidic magic and were gifted acceptance to become warlocks of Weyerhauser the Phantom Tree. All Marazors who have taken pilgrimage to the Dead Forest have returned alive and become part of Zola's Council of Huntresses. We now go into the Dead Forest of Weyerhauser. Uninhabited by any living humanoids, the great tree spirit of Weyerhauser resides with supreme dominance of his island. Devout followers of the necromantic monstrosity gain magic from making pilgrimage to the Dead Forest. Very few of his warlocks return from this journey. Those who are able to receive boons of necromantic artifacts or just get stronger, significantly more powerful in their magic. Because the island is a very dangerous place and it is unknown what happens to people, but it is theorized that most just die. So I'm just going to start with the beginning of the campaign story and go through essentially what happened and just like an overview. And um, this is going to be the topic or the subject of uh, my book that I'm writing. So King Corin calls upon his sons and their friends to discuss the quest of destroying his brother's kingdoms. They're given tasks to take out the kingdom of Scab, kill Karam and Seraph. They have two paths, can either go to Betran or to Oris. And they decided to go to Oris, the kingdom of Queen Amadea Gold. She was sent word that Corin's adventurers were sent to visit her and assist in any way that she needed. She planned a raid on the Scabs occupying parts of Chiffon. Karam is going to be there, and it provides opportunity to assassinate the king. However, it would cause for dismay among the groups who were fighting the scabs. Upon traveling via airship to Chiffon, the party is shot down and the ship is grounded. They make their way, after fighting off a few soldiers, to the camp. At the camp, before the Chiffon raid, Amadea meets Karam in his tent. Karam reveals to Amadea his plan to side with the scabs to further his kingdom. Amadea advises against attacking Corin and that his he should rather take out Seraph first. The party overhears this and decides that they want to assassinate Karam in the camp but then realize that if they do this, they might be killed immediately after. So they decide, eh, never mind. We're not going to do that. We'll wait. And they wait and fight off the scabs, and Karam overtakes the ranks of the scabs and forces them into his own army. Chiffon now recognizes Queen Amadea as their queen, and in turn brings more power to Corin. On their path to Karam, they find an encampment of scabs. As they're about to fight them, they realize that they are outnumbered, but Corin shows up in... Kills them all, like it was nothing, and then disappears again all just as fast. As they get into the mountains south of Karam, they realize there's a cave. And in this cave, there are many trials, including a big bull-like thing that was beaten by Draxorius Bondbreaker back when he was an adventurer, before he was a pirate. They eventually make their way to a mark on a wall, where Boric Corinson leans up to it, reads it, and finds Loki's blessing. It's a magical ability. It gives him uh, a lot. It gave him incredible modifiers to deception. It also came with a curse, which is Fenrir's curse, and also in future going to be a big problem for these boys. As they make their way into the city, they realize that they can't get in without authority of being royal or allied to Karam, as they can't say either, because if they are royalty, then they are inherently against Karam. After meeting with Karam's Bladesong, 
the mother of a Ron Bondbreaker, they make their way into the city. Upon getting into the city, they find a tavern, which is also an inn, and they go to, to find a room to sleep for the night before they try to assassinate Karim at the Tricorn of Giants. They hear a Viking war chant and a song sung by Jeff Skullbasher, a half-orc barbarian, and he tells the party of the Temple of Dreams. It's a place where you can deal with shadows and things that don't exist in the material plane. And he looks into Boric's eyes, realizing that there's a curse on him. Boric, unaware of the curse at the time, now starts hearing roars and howls every night as he falls asleep. And when he falls asleep this night, he sees Fenrir, a giant wolf in front of him in his dream. And as it's about to kill him in his sleep, he's awoken and they are taken to the Temple of Dreams by Jeff. There's a fog in this building, and they realize that it's a, a, a hallucinogenic, and they slip into a dream of a dark room with a massive wolf at the edge. They fight Fenrir in his shadow form for the first time, and upon Fenrir's fall, the party awakens without any feeling of fatigue except for Boric. He is just as tired as he was in the fight. It was kind of like a you die in the game, you die in real life type of thing. As they leave the Temple of Dreams, they find that Karim has gotten word of them being in the city and met them outside. With two pet spectators summoned to protect the Jewel of Erisor around his neck, they fight Karim. After killing Karim, the party rushes to escape the city because they know if they are caught having killed the king, they're going to be killed themselves. As they're leaving, they see a 500 foot tall Corin. This massive beast of a human destroys all of the city of Karam and the three castles that were the Tricorn of Giants, dedicated to each of the three sons. Karam's kingdom is falling apart, not only in the literal sense, but in the figurative. Of So they're gonna go find Jeff, who has an, uh, an escape plan. Camrys had told them this, so they find him and end up going into the sewers. The party finds himself carrying Boric's body. He had fallen in the fight against Karam. Boric died. And at this point, and for the sake of the game, because I wanted everyone to play and everyone was still learning, I decided that the first person to die in the game would just be resurrected somehow. And it just worked out that the one who would die is the character who makes the most sense to die and resurrect. And um, they go through the sewers and end up fighting with rats and solving puzzles and getting through, and eventually fighting an Aboleth. As they begin to fight the Aboleth, Boric flashes to life, and there was a secret there. I recorded this thing and, and played it for uh, Shahan. Fenrir needs a vessel to survive. So having beaten him in the Temple of Dreams wasn't enough. He has latched on with this curse to Boric and awakens him. And they fight the Aboleth with um, some extra magical help from Fenrir, and they travel through the sewers and escape, which is when we jump forward two years, and the party finds themselves in Karan. News and information of other towns are easily accessible here, and nothing has been said about the Corin situation, about him destroying an entire city in the two years past. The Scabs have overrun all of Karim. The entire western side is now run by the Kingdom of Scab, over half of Kaskan as well. So the leaders of Kaskan have scattered to the winds, leaving the land up for the taking. Obviously, it's more land to be taken by the Kingdom of Scab. Solace Bloodfoil, the leader of Karan, takes notice of the party specifically due to a scrap that the party got themselves in. Solace approaches the party and asks them to aid in the assassination of Seraph. He tells them there is a festival in Iwan and a tournament where King Seraph will be in attendance. Leaders from across the land will join, but it is considered a time of peace as the scabs were also invited. They go to the festival and, and they get more information. 
they find out Seraph is going to be a certain place at a certain time, and they go to kill him. After they have killed him, the solid form, the corporeal form, of Fenrir appears. After having realized that Boric hasn't heard Fenrir's roars at night when he sleeps for the past two years since they escaped the Aboleth, or killed the Aboleth in the sewers, they realized the new vessel was Seraph. And Seraph conjured his magic and used magic, and they weren't ready for that because he's never been known to use magic. After defeating Fenrir, they realized they were betrayed by Solus Bloodfoil, who was working with the scabs and told them that they could kill that king, but obviously wasn't going to let them. Realizing that he was working with the scabs, they were all put in cuffs and taken to a cell. As they're taken to their cells, they find Corin, who is almost lifeless, chained up and strapped down, unmoving and kind of in a trance. His eyes are rolled back and you can tell that he's not himself. The worries that he's like this international terrorist leaves the party and they realize something else that is bigger is going on. And that's kind of all the story that I have set up right now that I'm able to talk about. Anyway, sorry if this is like a short episode or feel free to message me, email me, uh, hit the Instagram, DM the Instagram, and we'll try to get back to you. I have more in the future. If you want to hear more about this, let me know. I can get you in. I'll talk about the uh, one shot once we work on that I'll get the story finished up for that and start writing my book more so that there is more solidified stuff going on there Um, remember to check out the Instagram please do it'll help us out a lot and thank you very much I'll see you next time